Political class buys everything. Dude, I did a deep dive research on all this mysterious deaths around the Clintons. About a dozen that are just fucking hard to shake. Klaus Schwab famously said that you will own nothing and be happy. Look at you. You start a show with absolutely nothing and you have thousands and thousands of listeners. And you have force multipliers to send your content at. I was actually talking to Chase Geyser. He hadn't seen this. It just came out. I said, oh, did you see this? That You know, all these documents that... Oh, maybe I shouldn't even say what he said. <laughs> I shouldn't have said his name. Uh, I won't tell you what he said. I actually did a Getter uh, stream last night uh, with uh, was a Chase Geyser fantastic interview. One American Podcast live with Jay Dyer. Jay, it's an honor and a pleasure to have you. How are you today, sir? I'm doing great. I was just furiously trying to come up with cool things to say because before we started, you were like, I'm going to edit this and chop it up and there'll be cool stuff. And I was like, what if I don't say cool stuff? Now I'm under pressure. I got to write down cool stuff. I know, right? You should just whip out like a book of quotes or something. Book of cool uh, stuff. Just, just pull out Mein Kampf, read a line or two. <laughs> just that, kidding, of course. What is that? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Okay. Didn't really happen. <laughs> That's so, kind of weird anime thing. On. I don't follow the kids' anime, so I don't know what that is. So um, I want to ask you about Esoteric Hollywood. I don't know much about you. I just came across you because um, um, uh, we have a mutual connection through Sean Atwood's team. Oh, and yeah. uh, and I wanted to um, – I looked at your, your channel and your content, and it's really cool. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about – how you got started in this space. I know you've been posting content on YouTube for like seven, eight, nine years. Where does this begin for you? Dude, I think it actually goes back to like 2007 on YouTube. Because I remember I was just thinking today I got a, a comedian coming on later on after this uh, interview with, with you. And I was noticing he had a, a channel and he was like, oh, I had some of the earliest YouTube stuff. In 2009, I'm like, dude, my channel was in 2007, and I was uploading like totally cringe sketch comedy in 2007. So it's been a long time. I've been at this a long time. Um, yeah. So I mean, it, the esoteric Hollywood started out of like my college uh, research and a love for movies that I had since high school. So ever since high school, I've, I've always been fascinated, big movie buff, and all my buddies were kind of in the you know, the artsy fartsy crowd in high school. And so when I went to college, I was like, well, I like movies, but uh, I don't know if I'm going to end up as a movie star. So I, I tried different things. I didn't make it as a movie star, if you were wondering. But I, yet. I, I, I did uh, find out that there's a lot of overlaps in other areas that I like between philosophy, movies, geopolitics, history. They all kind of overlap in a weird way, which I didn't expect. And so when I was working on uh, a philosophy graduate degree or undergrad degree, I was taking a lot of film classes. And in, in those film classes, we were kind of tying together literature and literary motifs and Hollywood and the way that Hollywood presents literature. And I started noticing that a lot of movies contain propaganda. So this piqued my interest and I was kind of getting into a lot of mid 2000s era conspiracy material online at the time. A lot of Jason Burmis's stuff, a lot of Lord Vald Lord Voldemort. You probably know who I'm talking about. Unbelievable. That guy that you can't name. Uh, and so I was getting into all that stuff in the mid 2000s and um, had these, you know, disparate worlds 
going on. And then I, I thought uh, by the time I got to grad school, I really wanted to combine all these. So I just started blogging about movies pretty extensively. I've done a lot of blogging that related to like, um, you know, politics and uh, libertarian Ron Paul, Rand Paul campaigns, that kind of stuff. And then that kind of just snowballed into this weird thing where I quit doing the political stuff and mainly was just focusing on movies, movie symbolism. And uh, eventually a publisher reached out and said, you've got all these blogs. Do you have a, a book? Yes, I do. So I didn't, but I put together a book. Uh, and so then there was a part two of the book. And then we did a, a season of a TV show on the basis of the book. So basically, Esoteric Hollywood, in short, is a reflection of all of my interests over the years as it pertains to geopolitics, symbolism in film, um, the deep, dark history of Hollywood and all of its different facets, the real uh, uh, history behind various movies and also how movies are propaganda. So that kind of that's what undergirds the first couple uh, Hollywood books that I wrote. Um, and then then it kind of branched out into I just started doing all kinds of other stuff. So I ended up hosting uh, the fourth hour of Lord Voldemort uh, every Friday, almost every Friday for the last couple of years and uh, do a lot of lectures on what I call the global elite books. So this is everything from Carol Quigley to Klaus Schwab today, going back 100 years to Bertrand Russell, H.G. Wells. We kind of lecture through all those texts. We do a lot of weird comedy, a lot of bizarre, absurdist style comedy. A lot of uh, I've ended my, my own music style called cringe core music. So I, I do these sort of weird music. I don't know what you call it. Music in scare quotes, I guess we could say. Um, yeah, so that's what we do. And it all just sort of snowballed from, you know, blogging in college ironically so when you talk about propaganda in movies when i think of the word propaganda i think of like um in a, an intentional state entity telling you know production companies what to do are you talking about something like that or is this sort of like is this the type of propaganda that's so sort of pervasive that it comes through on accident in all these in all these films all the above so um when I first started studying film, I was looking at it from a literary perspective. So if you take college classes, you'll take, if you take lit classes, you'll do what they call a close reading. And you can do the same thing with movies where you watch a movie and you kind of dissect it at the level of symbolism. And, you know, this scene is symbolizing this with the death of this character. And there's a cross here because it symbolizes this kind of stuff. Now I remember, uh, Roger Ebert had a commentary on, um, uh, citizen Kane, and he did this really interesting symbolic critique of everything in in uh in that movie probably in about 2003 is when i first watched that it was kind of is when dvd commentaries were new and it was like oh you get this dvd you get this commentary by roger ebert that stuck in my head is like hey you could actually probably dissect films in this way on you know like a public scale that kind of influenced the blogging but then i tied it into other ways to read film in terms of like propaganda that's intentional like you mentioned with mm. maybe intelligence agencies wanting certain narratives to be in films and uh, over time as i studied that at, a, at a, even a grad level i was amazed at how many movies had this you know long standing history of um putting intentional messages propaganda uh sometimes at a subtle level and sometimes the whole film for example uh, ben affleck made that movie argo and, you know, it won the award, uh, Academy Award that year. But that was actually about a CIA operation to go into Iran and utilize a, a movie filming cover. So that, that was actually a cover that they used uh, during the Iranian Revolution to, you know, sort of get some uh, hostages out 
all done under the cover of a, a, a B movie sci-fi movie that was being filmed. Right. And so that when I first learned about that back at the time, I was like, that that's fascinating. So I wonder if there's any other movies that might have been involved in, you know, this weird sort of intelligence agency espionage stuff. And that kind of took me down a whole rabbit hole of the whole history of people in Hollywood that worked with the deep state, we could call it. And this actually goes back way before what we think of as like classic Hollywood in the 40s and 50s. It goes back back to like the 20s, 30s with people like Howard Hughes, who was filming these, sure. these big blockbuster, you know, propaganda films uh, like Hell's Angels. And, you know, th those were the blockbusters of that time. And they were they were really war propaganda. And um, the more I dug into this, the more I found that there's really just it's, it's flip sides of the same coin. So that the deep state, as we could call it, has kind of always had this marriage relationship with Hollywood and with A-list actors and musicians and people like this, where, uh, you know, at times a lot of the famous uh, uh, Hollywood people have even been spies. They've been they've been recruited to do spying. And, you know, again, all of this really is was something that I never would have thought was the case until i went down that rabbit hole we do see movies though like one of my favorite movies of all time is the good shepherd um in in other movies like snowden for example that are, that are critical of the intelligence apparatus are those just sort of like flukes that seep through the cracks or are they in and of themselves like a form of propaganda and that they like uh reinvigorate or re-inspire trust in the hollywood machine when there's like you know like a little drip or yeah. or drop here and there of criticism but then you know everything else is like totally pro-war right right yeah i think sometimes there's a, an allowance for a little bit of criticism self-reflection self-awareness and people can make art that's critical of the establishment for example in, you know in the 70s and 80s there were a lot of films that came out that were critical of the vietnam war mm -hmm. and uh you know hollywood was, was very anti-war at that at that time period and then by the time of the 90s and 2000s, through you know, as a result of the war on terror, things kind of flipped and Hollywood took on this, uh, not not in every area, but in a lot of areas, a very uh, subtly sort of um, pro-war on terror message. Sure, through American some Sniper. Of the yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, that's into the 2000s, but even before that, in the 90s, in the 90s, there were films coming out that were kind of presaging the war on mm -hmm. terror, like True Black Lies. Down. Yeah. Well, the big first big blockbuster that was uh, had a, a terror war on terror narrative was uh arnold's true lies right so we got to get the terrorists uh and you know, that was way ahead of you know the, the big nine event now you could argue that was after the 1993 uh you know wtc event so maybe it wasn't totally um but but it was before the you know the big ramped up war on terror so yeah of course rocky uh, three right is that was it three that was the russian yeah, um, but don't so don't forget though that uh, Rambo also with uh, it, like Rambo goes and fights with the Mujahideen, right? I think it's in Rambo two, it's either one or two. But so he's fighting with the same people that Reagan called into the White House, who would actually become the the Taliban, right? The, the Al Qaeda right. would come out of the the freedom fighters and the Mujahideen. Um, and there's there's other cases too. I think in Living Daylights, uh, the Timothy Dalton James Bond, he goes. The, the significant part of that plot is him fighting with the, the Mujahideen, <laughs> the, the Al Qaeda against the Soviets, uh, and so it's kind of reflecting that uh, post-Soviet uh, War, 1979, Brzezinski model of how we would recruit and utilize the Mujahideen um, up into the 80s. So again, yeah, th th this this is kind of never any rabbit hole, and, and to mention that James Bond stuff, that that's kind of what I did my my main sort of graduate work on was focusing on bond because he's in every he influenced, era 
Yeah, I mean, well, Ian Fleming is kind of the the greatest example of what I'm trying to convey. This idea of a guy who goes from um, you know World War II intelligence operations at a really high level for naval intelligence for the uh, British Navy and being a part of special operations executive to putting into a lot of the the original uh, thirteen or whatever it is Bond novels that he wrote. Uh, putting in a lot of his own missions, his a lot of uh, things that reference historical um, British intelligence operations, World War II stuff. For example, Operation Golden Eye was a World War II operation that he was involved in. Now, the movie version of that doesn't really have anything to do with his actual <laughs> World War II thing because the movie version is Christopher Lee is uh, Stradamanga, and he's building this giant sort of uh, electromagnetic sun weapon that's going to zap everybody, but. Um, that doesn't really have anything to do with what he was doing, but he did take the name from one of his real uh, World War II operations, which had to do with Spain and Franco and fascism in Spain. Anyway, but um, you know, he's a key example of this uh, uh, marriage between the world of espionage and the world of Hollywood. And and I think up until Harry Potter or maybe Avatar, you know, the Bond franchise was the biggest iconic franchise in the world. Sure. And so I analyzed it from the vantage point of like propaganda, but. Uh, but anyway, I'm, I'm rambling, but that's a, that's a long answer to your question. No, it's fascinating. I heard that they let Pierce Brosnan go because of 9-11. Is that true from what you know? Or did you, had you ever heard that? I heard that they called him after 9-11. And they're like, we're going to need a different bond because everything's changed. <laughs> uh, I, I, and I don't even remember where I heard that. It's like one of those things that I know, but I don't know how I know. So like, there's a part of me that's really skeptical that I really know it. Yeah, <laughs> but I'm pretty I, sure that yeah. that's true. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, you know, the... It did take a different turn from, uh, obviously, from uh, Brosnan to Craig. It got a lot more serious. But Yeah, Craig stopped getting part, laid. Yeah, right. The weird part that, well, I mean, you have like Roger Moore walking on the heads of alligators. And like <laughs> black dudes are like uh, inflating as if like if you put a, a bike pump to a black dude, like he would inflate and pop. I mean, just completely ridiculous stuff. And yeah. Then, so, so from Roger Moore to, to Daniel Craig, it's totally different. It's It's a lot more serious, like you said. And. But the one thing that's weird about the um, the Craig franchise years is that there were way more uh, critical aspects that relate to what you're talking about. For example, Spectre is very much about the exposés relating to things like Snowden, relating to things like the deep state, um, you know, spying on everybody, the, these various programs that had been in the works for a long time. And it was very self-critical. It was very much the nine eyes security uh, system of Spectre that blofeld is setting up was totally obviously based in real world world stuff going on at that time in terms of geopolitics and you know certain people that are not supposed to be named like uh like uh yorge soros uh, we'll say um you know he he's kind of an archetypal sort of figure that even the guardian if i recall was putting out articles at the time of specter saying is this is this a, a critiquing you know jorge soros i mean it seems like it Right, right. So I got to ask you, as someone who's studied philosophy and propaganda and film specifically, and as someone who has expressed a love for film, what's your favorite movie? And I know that's an impossible question to answer, but what's one of your favorite movies to make it a little bit easier for you to fire one off? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's for me, uh, there's a lot of different genres. So, you know, um, anything to do with um, tentacles and a Asian women. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> <laughs> Joke. <laughs> i knew somebody was going to be like oh he's going to say something related to prawn no it's a joke uh, i don't like any of that stuff i'm joking um different genres you know i like different genres so like um 
or even decades. Like I kind of have favorite movies from the nineties, favorite movies mm. from the two thousands. I mean, I grew up with star Wars and so I've always appreciated the original trilogy. I don't like any of the, anything to do with the Disney stuff. But you still um, watch the Disney ones though, even though you don't like them. Uh, I did watch the baby Yoda. That's it. I haven't seen anything. Yeah. Else. Mandalorian. But, uh, that was fun. Yeah. Mandalorian. I, I enjoyed that. Okay. But, um, favorite films. I, I, I like a lot of, uh, you know, the, the Godfather trilogy is a classic. Um, mm-hmm. I, <clears throat> excuse me. I like um, a lot of Mel Gibson uh, films that are kind of classics. Uh, I like Conspiracy Theory, the Richard Donner movie with Mel Gibson. Um, I like um, Lord of the Rings, Peter Jackson. I mean, it's kind of it's kind of cornball, but uh, I, I still I still, still enjoy it. I, it's I still a okay. bumper, you know. It, yeah, there's yeah, still yeah. some inspiring moments, you know. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, you know, God. Especially when they're bouncing in the bed. (laughs) (laughs) They're taking the hobbits to Isengard. (laughs) Uh, Anyway. uh, (laughs) um, Yeah, so I mean, uh, probably some of the big ones that people would expect. Uh, I think think at least for what I talk about, some of the classics that are revelatory would be things like Eyes Wide Shut. You know, a lot of Kubrick stuff is really good. Dr. Strangelove. Um, I mean, I'm not saying... Eyes Wide Shut is my favorite movie. I'm saying that for the purposes sure. of il- illustrating kind of elite control and cults and you know espionage and blackmail, something like Eyes Wide Shut is great for that kind of stuff. But and I think it is a well-made, deep movie. I, I don't know if I would say it's one of my favorites, but yeah, I, I'd have to think more. I mean, uh, I, I didn't expect that. I always get that question though. You'd think I would be better at it, but. Well, I know it's like an impossible question to answer, but it's it's just given the nature of your work, it's fascinating one to hear. Your well, it's to. sort of like now you, you go into a different mode when you watch movies. You kind of you're watching them now for propaganda, symbolism, this kind of stuff, and so it's almost like I don't watch movies in the same way as I did, you know, when I was a teenager or even in my twenties. It's it's like a totally different lens now. Which I mean, I still enjoy them when they're good, but. Now so what do you think of Maverick then? Let's talk about propaganda and movies. Oh, Maverick yeah. is the well, most recent big blockbuster, movie. right? Yeah. yeah. What'd you think of it when you watched it? Um, you, you want me to do my Tom Tom Coombe impression? Yeah, I love it. That's it. There's not actually any voice. It's just him smiling and doing that thing. Anyway, um, <laughs> we, we have all these inside jokes on my channel so that are really dumb. But uh, I thought it was like a repeat of Top Gun. And they just kind of copied and pasted the storyline and they just kind of repeated everything uh as a movie it wasn't bad uh, it was enjoyable it was inter- it was entertaining it was fun i wish they had done a little bit more in, in terms of diversifying i don't mean affirmative action i mean they need to hire more affirmative action people no i mean in, in terms of diversifying the plot i think if, if it had been a little more I just felt like I'm watching the original Top Gun just repackaged. That was kind of annoying. Yeah. But, um, anyway, it was okay, but I think it was propaganda. But really, the first Top Gun is a lot more, uh, a lot more explicit, like for knowably being, you know, notably being uh, propaganda because Reagan allocated a bunch of money at that time to Hollywood for these kinds of uh, pro-military messages. So there's actually a whole spate of these in the 80s that came out after Reagan was elected. Um, you had Navy SEALs with Charlie Sheen. You had uh, Top Gun, um, Iron Eagle. Those are all so like there's like each branch of the military <laughs> has a franchise that was promoting that branch. Right. Mm-hmm. So like Iron Eagle is promoting Air Force with Lewis Gossett Jr. I think 
and then Navy SEALs was supposed to promote the Navy and the Navy SEALs. Would, I don't right. think that did any good. That was kind of a bomb. It had Charlie Sheen and Michael Bean. And then you had Top Gun for Navy as well. And then I guess also kind of Air Force since they fly the jets. But yeah, I mean, um, I also, when we, when we went back and watched Top Gun, uh, Jamie, my wife and I, we were kind of like, man, uh, you know, Quentin Tarantino's thesis is kind of vindicated. There's a lot of like, I don't know if you've seen that famous clip of Quentin Tarantino talking about Top Gun. <laughs> no, I haven't. Tell me about it. <laughs> um. I'm trying to think of how to say it in a uh, safe way for, you know, YouTube and whatnot. I don't want to get you in any trouble, but they, basically he just says that the, it's a movie about guys. If you get, if you catch my drift, right. I see. Do you think yeah. it's Tom erotic? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. So don't you uh, die on me goose. Listen, what does he say? What does he say at the end of the movie? What's his line? You can ride my tail anytime. It's gay. Right. That's Tarantino <laughs> talking about it's, you know, that's literally what he says. And then so Jamie and I you sound just it, like, like him, dude. <laughs> we were, Jamie and I were watching it. We were like, you know, they're in the shower. They're like smacking butts with towels. And like, they, then there's that weird sequence where they're playing volleyball and it's, it's right. Uh, one Very of sweaty. 80s. Yeah. And there's one of those eighties, uh, you know, guys hanging with the boys, you know, that song is playing. It's just really weird. A lot of leather. Well, he does this thing where, uh, so, you know, half the movie, he's like going over to Kelly McGillis's house and like taking showers. It's like, he doesn't Mac on her until, you know, three fourths of the way through the movie. It's like, he's over, he's over at his house. She's coming on to him and he's like, I need to take a shower. I need to take a sh-. He goes to take showers for half the movie. So I don't know. That was another argument that, uh, Tarantino could have used in his arsenal if he wanted to, but anyway so yeah but uh you know top gun is kind of a classic uh, propaganda example so i didn't realize that there was like actual federal funding allocated for some of these these yeah. films oh, yeah. so so like is every single does every movie that hollywood produces major box office movie does it have like a little taste of federal funding or like tax forgiveness or is it just some of them in certain times how does that work uh, so I would say yes to the first two things you said. Uh, there's okay. a lot of times there's, there's tax breaks. A lot of times there, well, they used to be before a lot of CGI, it was like, we'll, we'll let you l- use tanks and, you know, aircraft carriers, but you have to insert, you know, certain sort of pr- pro military messages in the film. And so I see, um, some academics put out a book, uh, I think in about 2003 called operation Hollywood. And that was one of the first books to call attention to this angle of it, where it was like, Hey, wait a minute. You know, they're actually putting a lot of money into messages in a lot of these films. And they're actually editing the screenplays. And so then it came out uh, after the movie The Recruit with Al Pacino and I think Ryan Felipe. Um, that was the, one of the first movies that openly was consulted by the CIA. Now, I think that a lot of films already were for a long time consult consulted on in some way by... But, the, but that one was one of the first that was like really public about it. Then we had another important film come out uh, called Wag the Dog, which is a, a pretty funny satirical critique of um, how wars are sold through prop, pop culture. So it's a, it's a weird kind of meta uh, narrative analysis of the, the things that I talk about. I had a whole chapter, I think, on, uh, on Wag the Dog in one of my books. But um, this movie was about these figures who are these liaisons between the intelligence agencies in Hollywood. And uh, I highly recommend if nobody's seen that movie, it, it really illustrates 
you know, a big portion of the theses of, of my books, because you have this character played by Robert De Niro, uh, who is li liaisoning with and interacting with a big Hollywood director played by, um, not Richard Dreyfuss. Uh, I just went blank. Um, Dustin Hoffman. So Dustin Hoffman is sort of playing like a, a Kubrick character, right? A director. And then Robert De Niro is, is the CIA guy who kind of shows up and is like, you're going to film the way the movie, the way, the way we want <laughs> uh, for, you know, for our benefit. And so that was a big revelatory film. A lot of people felt like that movie might actually be based on some of the real liaisons between Hollywood and the CIA, like uh, Chase Brandon and Milt Bearden, who are uh, famous CIA people who then went on to consult on Hollywood films. So, you know, a lot of this was sort of in, again, DVD commentaries of all places, right? So I would, I've always been a movie, like I said, movie buff. And so I would buy these, you know, DVDs when they came out. And, right, and there was the behind the scenes section, yeah, right? On the disc. And I'm, I'm watching the commentaries uh, on these and I'm like, hey, wait a minute. They got CIA guys commenting on the fact how they helped create, create this movie. And then over time, that just became more and more public and more and more. Oh, yeah, sure. Well, yeah, we all know that. But here's the weird part. When I talked about that stuff, I think I first learned about this in 2007. When I would talk about this stuff back then, I mean, people would just like, oh, you're a good nutball. Look at this dude. Crazy schizo tinfoil hat. Right. I mean, every name in the book for years. And I'm like, this isn't you could go find this and go to your library, go to your, your local college. Well, just look at the Red Scare. I mean, weren't there actors during that time that were constantly being like accused and criticized of having attended communist meetings and. There was this whole like oh, fear yeah. that Hollywood had been infiltrated by the communists. So there was there's certainly a very public and well accepted history of right. government involvement in in Hollywood. The question just then becomes like how pervasive is it right. and how continuous has it been for the last 100 years? Exactly. And it sounds it seems to me like what we're talking about what you're saying that it's been basically a common thread and sometimes it's a little bit more on the surface and obvious than others. Yeah, there was a, a FOIA request um, maybe two or three years ago um, done by some guys who asked for uh, declassified documents in regard to um, Pentagon funding for movies. And they got back like a box of, of information. And uh, I cited it in my book, uh, second book on the first page. Uh, their book is called uh, National Security Cinema. And, and I cited their, their research in that book because, you know, they had like thousands of pages of stuff relating to according to their uh, research hundreds of movies and tv shows over uh, multiple decades getting you know pentagon funding for things like um put in messages pro military even in even in shows as innocuous as cupcake wars so yeah turns out this is like a super pervasive thing um i would i would venture to guess that most blockbusters probably have some degree of this kind of a thing uh, I don't think that that necessarily means everybody obviously involved in the films because that's hundreds of maybe thousands of people, especially in big blockbusters. They don't know this. Right. Uh, a lot of this is taking place at a very high level and it's, you know, very, uh, you know, Fortune 100 people are consulting and getting con consultation, you know, on. OK, we like your screenplay, but, you know, we'd like you to insert, you know, something positive for, uh, you know, military industrial complex, Raytheon, Boeing, whatever, something like this. Right. Um so it kind of ranges, right? So it ranges from that to even, in some cases, uh, entire film productions being covers for intelligence operations. There, there's actually a couple of those that have been documented. Um, one of those uh, appears to have been a, a Dolph Lundgren film 
So I'm not accusing Dolph Lundgren of being part of some vast conspiracy, right? I mean, people may not know exactly what all is going on, but um, uh, yeah, there's another section of my book where an entire, like I think the FBI in California had created uh, one whole film, a film company. So basically a creation of a film company for the purpose of um, surveilling, I don't know, somebody who was engaged in some kind of uh, high level Hollywood money laundering. So again, uh, the, a lot of this stuff is a lot more common than I would have ever expected, but you know, I try to be nuanced and, and I don't think everybody who makes movies is part of some vast conspiracy. It doesn't sure. really work like that. And that's, that's not what I'm saying. Are there any examples of the government coming in and, uh, just shutting down a movie altogether? Like the movie's done, they're about ready to release it. And the government's like, Nope, not this one. Well, you know, in recent years, there were a couple examples pretty close. Fountainhead to that. got shut down. I don't know if that was a conspiracy or not, but um, Zack Schneider was going to do a version of the Fountainhead by Ayn Rand. Oh, I didn't and it got pl- the plug got pulled on it because it was too div- divisive of a time or a political climate. That oh, was the wow. excuse. Uh, yeah, there's there's well, there's one I didn't even know about. I mean, there was the a lot of skullduggery around the. Um, north korea satire thing of seth rogan mm-hmm. when, all, when all that came out yeah the great dictator um, or not the great dictator but the dictator i think it's just yeah, what it was and called then there was there was a case where uh, similar stuff happened when they leaked the ending of the bond film if you remember that the sony uh hacks and leaks from uh, several years ago i no, mm-hmm. i don't know that didn't shut down the film but um there's a lot of suspicious things about that i'm sort of running through my memory about this um the remake of red dawn uh that was shut down because the government didn't want china has a lot of interest in uh, hollywood studios and so um they didn't want red dawn to explicitly name anybody in relationship to the old red dawn so they didn't want to name china especially uh so that was a big one that that happened in recent uh years um other shutdowns yeah, that makes sense. Just I'm because sure the first the anymore, first Red Dawn yeah. was so explicitly anti-communist that it would be hard to get a new one made that seemed anywhere close to authentic and also right. would be able to be played in Chinese theaters. There's no exactly. way. Now, I also remember there was a couple, uh, supposedly a couple uh, Oliver Stone films that were supposed to get made that never got made. Um, I don't know to what degree they were shut down by the deep state, but uh, you know, sometimes he was able they- to make that JFK documentary though, and basically shat it shat on the uh, the intelligence community for four yeah. hours. Yeah, <laughs> but that was I don't think that was a theatrical release. That was something that was just like a Showtime exclusive, and then I think now it's on a couple different platforms. I'm not sure. Yeah, I, th- I think that it's it's a little bit of both, like you said earlier. Like sometimes mm-hmm. they'll allow a little bit of drips, you know, a little a little bit of uh, internal critique. But usually, when it, we have the internal critique drip, all that that they really allow is, uh, oh, there's a couple bad apples, and we're going to root out the bad apples. And there, there's never a questioning of the these agencies as a whole. If we should even right. have these. One of the things that's been blowing my mind, my, my wife and I have a two-year-old, and so we've been watching a lot of Disney, mostly the old stuff, like from 60s, like 101 Dalmatians, Lady and the Tramp, kind of the classics. But mm-hmm. you know, every once in a while, we'll try a new one. And one of the things that has blown my mind is like the movie Coco. I don't know if you've seen that movie. I haven't. So it's it's a fairly new Disney movie. And it basically, the plot is there's this... this it takes, it's a Dia de los Muertos sort of Hispanic kind of theme, right? And this little boy um, inadvertently winds up in like the world of the dead and he's frantically trying to find his like great grandfather the whole time. And if anybody in the world of the dead realizes that he's not dead and he's alive, he gets kicked out 
right? Mm-hmm. And it's like really obviously oh, wow. an illegal immigration metaphor, right? And the whole story, you're like rooting yeah. for him to be able to stay, you know, until he does what he needs to do to like reunite his family. And it's like, right. it's like, there's even like a border and everything. And like, he like sneaks <laughs> past security. Like this is literally like an illegal immigration situation. And yeah. I, it's yeah. just so funny. Like I couldn't tell if they were just trying to like, if, if they made this story because it resonated with like the market that they were trying to reach, or if they were just trying to push like sympathy or empathy for like anybody going through that experience of like trying to get from one world to the other. I mean, there's yeah. so many examples of, you know, that movie Elysium with, with uh, Matt Dadbot. I mean, Matt Damon that came out yeah. uh, a yeah. couple of years yeah. ago. I mean, that the whole thing was a, a sort of an open border message too. So yep. uh, I tend to think that, yeah, that those are movies are chosen for a purpose for their geopolitical or, or domestic politics in America propaganda. Sure. Yeah, that's my, that's my piece. But at the same token, like like, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of that uh, show Altered Carbon based on the trilogy. I don't know if you've ever watched it about resleeving and stuff. And they're like you could say that it's like an open border message, but you could also make the case that it's like an anti-globalist message mm-hmm. because you have like these globalist elites that have lived 300 years because they keep mm-hmm. getting resleeved and and like it's almost like an anti-klaus schwab world economic mm-hmm. forum type message right. it, depending on how you interpret it but right. you know matt damon's obviously not going to be involved in anything that's you know pro necess- pro individual yeah. or national sovereignty necessarily <laughs> yeah exactly i mean it, there every now and then there, there's some good uh you know things that leak through and, and some good shows that uh, you know kind of expose things um, we just recently watched, uh, it was a 2016, 17, 18, I think series by, uh, Carlton Cuse, who, uh, did, uh, lost with JJ Abrams. And, uh, he did the series called colony, which is, which is really fascinating because the aliens, we think they come and they set up basically a global new world order and everybody's sort of on lockdown under for, you know, all the, so basically pre- predicting lockdowns years before we had the CUFID. Um, and then it turns out that they are working with uh, a global elite government to set up a, a world government, you know, to, to sort of enslave everybody. So, so far, that one has pre- been pretty revelatory. We haven't uh, finished the season yet, but but uh, somebody in, in the audience said, hey, watch Colony. It's really good. And it has all of these elements of, you know, um, surveillance and, and lockdowns and New World Order and global currency and all this kind of stuff that's they even have a, a an alien a new alien religion so that there's a global alien based religion that the, that the uh invaders are sort of duping everyone into and they can sort of trigger this uh personal uh salvific experience through their alien tech and that people are duped into thinking that you know this is some sort of anyway but point is just that you know i one of the things i hammered on in, in my uh first book was alien propaganda i, I don't personally believe in aliens but um, I think that Hollywood has used uh, alien uh, mythology, the alien mythos and all of this since the 1940s and 50s for a specific um, psychological warfare purpose. And so there's mm-hmm. a lot of there's a lot that backs that up, too, when you get into the history of Hollywood's relationship to alien movies. In fact, uh, there was CIA consultation on one of the first big um, alien films, the uh, uh, the day the earth stood still. Yeah. And yeah, it, yeah that, that had uh, CIA consultation. I think it was even connected to CD Jackson, who famously was involved in what's called what was called the doctrinal warfare program. And that was an attempt to take over the religions uh, in the 1950s and 60s for the purpose of uh, propaganda during the Cold War. So that the, the rationale was that the doctrinal warfare program would force the churches in America to promote Americanism contra the Soviets. Now, 
okay, I guess in the setting of the Cold War, we could see that that makes sense. The problem is that you then have a new master that you're, you're sort of on the hook with after the Cold War. Now you have to keep doing, you know, the deep state bidding. And so that's the that dangerous relationship that you get in when you when you do this kind of thing. And that was evident even back then in the 1940s and 50s, the earliest days of Hollywood uh, alien movies. Um, for example, a lot of the alien movies tied into propaganda. The first time I noticed this was when I was watching the um, the old series uh, Twilight Zone. Yeah. And some of the some of the earliest episodes in Twilight Zone feature these very uh, odd uh, elements like MK Ultra. I think the pilot episode has a soldier going into a float tank and undergoing uh, mind control where he thinks he's going back to his hometown and all this kind of stuff. And as you progress through the series, you see that a lot of the credits, they cite the Department of Defense. <laughs> so the Department of Defense consulted on Twilight Zone. And it actually makes sense if we, under, if we understand the, the, the UFO alien narrative as a uh, new mythos to be manipulated to try to to steer people in a potential new direction for their ideological reference point. So in one of my, my second book, I have an analysis that uh, cites a 1968 Brookings uh, Institute report uh, related to NASA, which was precisely about this very thing, creating an alien mythology to give people a new religion to unite around. So mm -hmm. um, whether that will be successful, I don't know. I'm not saying necessarily that they will go in the direction of creating a new world religion based around aliens that's that's a, that's theoretical but there are white papers that discuss this and that's the point that's interesting well one of the things that i think of when i think about aliens and cinema is similar to the approach with the, the transatlantic accent right so there was this sort of accent that was developed for television that was not associated with any sort of geopolitical status right like this just in right like that no one sounds like that in real life but if you do it on right. tv then there's no stereotype associated with it so you can you know sort of it's a blank canvas with the character development right yeah. and so it with the alien thing that's convenient from a creative standpoint is you can have an enemy of the united states that isn't another country in the world right so it doesn't have to be an anti-china or an anti-russia narrative like independence day is just america it's obviously a pro-america sort of right. movie but the yeah. enemy is like there's no global enemy it's just this like totally like detached enemy that comes that, that seems overwhelming right yeah and and that's actually a fundamental aspect of the especially during the cold war for example you would have a lot of propaganda that came out during the cold war of the alien threat being basically loosely anything to do with the soviets or the or, or communism but never actually named. And so it would just be, in fact, there's some of the uh, twilight zones are about this where the, the aliens are the, the foreign threat that turns everybody into a hive mind, uh, which is kind of true. <laughs> but the irony is that nowadays that that hive mind threat isn't coming out of Moscow and Soviets. It's actually, you know, world economic forum and, and Davos and Klaus who want everybody to be microchipped and part of a hive mind by, by their own uh, express admission. So, um, yeah, you're absolutely right about that. And there's there's countless examples, especially during the Cold War of, of the hive mind. In fact, Invasion of the Body Snatchers is really, I think, um, it's a little bit prior to it's right, kind of right at the beginning of the Cold War. Um, but it is anti-Soviet, anti-collectivist uh, ideology. Sure. So how is it that Klaus Schwab has wrangled so much influence? I mean, I don't I don't know the details, but whenever I try to research him, it's impossible to find anything. I don't think he's actually personally, at least not on paper, incredibly wealthy. I don't understand. This guy came out of nowhere and all of a sudden he's got every world leader going to his his conferences and 
he's just got this like totally disproportionate amount of global influence for who he is. Like what is going on, man? Yeah. So I think that uh, Johnny Vedmore, who's a, a journalist, he did a lot of research together with Whitney Webb on the backstory of Klaus and the WEF and uh, everything that they came up with sort of jives with everything that I've read. Um, when you get into people like Kissinger and David Rockefeller and Brzezinski, <clears throat> these are the figures that sort of pick out uh, future people to be in those types of positions. And so it was uh, Henry Kissinger, uh, together with other people like Herman Kahn of the Rand Corporation, that noticed Klaus and came up with the idea to create uh, the World Economic Forum out of Davos. And so this is essentially a CIA creation on record. And uh, it, it was born out of what was called the Harvard Project. So that there's the Harvard Research, Harvard Research Project. There's th these different titles. Uh, and this is a lot of that East Coast uh, uh, snobby elite that sort of allied themselves with the Anglo-American establishment or with the UK establishment, known as the Anglo-American establishment in the writings of Carol Quigley. Um, that's who really put uh, Klaus and Davos in that position. So it's really just another CIA Rockefeller kind of creation. So. Um, and, and David Rockefeller has a history of doing that by his own admission in his memoirs and his, in his authorized biography. Um, there's Collier and Horowitz and then his own memoirs. Uh, and it really kind of tells everything. And, you know, he talks about uh, when he was during in world wartime, he was he worked in intelligence and this allowed him to figure out how to network with a lot of people at a, a lot of different levels, and how to recruit people and how to how put them into these kinds of positions. And so um, one of his first famous recruits put into these kinds of position would was uh Brzezinski. Uh, so Brzezinski was recruited and put into this by both Rockefeller and Kissinger uh, to head up a steering committee known as the Trilateral Commission. And so the same people, basically, this sort of Kissinger uh, Rockefeller circles, picked Klaus to head up this uh, World Economic Forum Davos outfit. So it's more like a um, a public version of the Bilderberg Group is essentially all it is. And right. David Rockefeller has a, you know, a whole chapter on the Bilderberg Group in his memoirs where he talks about being involved in, in helping to set that up and get it going and it being this, uh, you know, high level corporate uh, sort of debating steering committee. So that's kind of what they do is just sort of create these, uh, these steering committees, these societies, these NGOs, these think tanks, and they just sort of, it's like a fractal. Like they just, they just come out of David Rockefeller's body, like a fractal. There's just like so many of these. Right. Um, and in my view, uh, which is you know, based on a lot of the writings of uh, Dr. Carol Quigley, for example, uh, th this is really, uh, you know, some of the wealthiest families that are behind this uh, in the world, but particularly in the U.S. and in the U.K. And, you know, they have a, they have adopted a Malthusian ideology and they've adopted a um, you know, strategy for a long term technocracy based on depopulation that's in all of their books. Uh, one of the things we do at my channel is we lecture, as I said, through dozens of these. So I think to date we've lectured through about 40, 50 uh, official writings of the elite going back about 100 years. Um, and so that's why Klaus is there. Klaus was picked to be in that position and given this sort of a public face of a Bilderberg type of group to promote um ultimately just a, a technocratic post-human world you know it's interesting that you mentioned the the depopulation aspect of it because i was looking through some uh pictures of evidence from uh epstein's uh property mm -hmm. and some of the pictures sort of unintentionally have like bookcases in the background and if you zoom in you can see some of the books that he had and a lot of the what books if my, what if you zoomed in it was exactly the books that i have back here 
Yeah, yeah, no kidding. Be like, oh my gosh, this dude. <laughs> but it's just interesting that a lot of the books that he had are based off of like, oh, the Earth's overpopulated. How do we depopulate the planet? You know, and yes, exactly. You know, which doesn't seem necessarily associated with you know just some guy who's you know got a fetish for you know underage massages. Like this is like this guy was a globalist, right? Yeah, he he was uh, working closely. It eventually came out in the New York Times with uh, Gil Bates uh, with uh, MIT. There was a whole project at MIT. There was a lot of experimentation with um, genetics, with offspring. I mean, all of this stuff, you know, it came out that uh, uh, Jeff Stein McEffery was involved in in terms of allocating money. Um, as well as, you know, the, the, the blackmail stuff. So uh, it, it seemed to be something that was operating, you know, at multi-tiers, multi-levels involving Bond villain type of stuff, right? And I don't, yeah. I don't, I don't think he was at the top of the pyramid. I think he was, he was a high up sort of fixer, organizer sure. person. Um, and, you know, assuming if, if the story of his death is correct, you know, then, then he took the, the hit, he took the fall if that death story is correct, um, which obviously I think he was killed because of what he could potentially expose. But um, yeah, I mean, this is, this is the odd part about that whole stuff is that I didn't actually know a whole lot about his stuff. I'd, I'd never heard of that until um, RT uh, Ben Swan at RT did a report on Jeff Stein McEffrey, I think in 2018, 2017, maybe even 2016. And I remember hearing that report, but I'd never heard of him or knew anything about this. But I had been familiar with earlier cases that were the exact same type of thing. So, you know, you can go back into the 70s, the 80s. And, you know, there were these there was these older models of uh, sexual compromise uh, going on in you know deep state politics for decades, like the Franklin cover up uh, Boys Town and the Franklin cover up is, is one that's very well known. There's other examples of these kinds of things, you know, all over the world, actually. Um, the UK for a long time in, in their intelligence apparatus had their own kind of uh, compromise operations going on with Elm guest house that uh, was connected to, you know, the, the uh, MI6, MI5 there and compromising uh, high level MPs and officials. So, you know, from my separate research of the history of espionage and intelligence operations, I had, you know, covered this many, many times. I'd seen this in many, many books. Uh, you know, there's tons of books out there if you if you get into this research. So, uh, you know, for me, it was kind of like, on the one hand, it was surprising, but it wasn't because I knew about it. But then to see it exposed and coming out at such a big scale with with uh, our boy Jeff Stein, <laughs> McEffrey, I always say his name all mixed up to kind of sure. trick, the, trick the algorithm. So uh, I speak in codes um, anyway. But, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I've written about this kind of stuff as well, uh, you know, from a movie analysis standpoint, because, I, you know, when I did my Eyes Wide Shut analysis, analysis which is a big chapter in the, in the first book, uh, that came out in 2016. And I had written that analysis, I think, in 2011, talking about this kind of sexual compromise that goes on at a high level because of books like Franklin Cover Up, because of the, you know, documentary about uh, Boys Town that was on the Discovery Channel and all that kind of stuff um mcmartin preschool trial this kind of stuff that had been uh, in the alt media right for a long right. time and so th- again you know just to have the basically the thesis of that essay vindicated to me was was kind of wild so what incentive would the intelligence community particularly the cia have in um empowering a globalist institution because just like as a layman intuitively it seems counterproductive for an agency responsible for national security to promote any sort of 
uh, globalization and waning of national sovereignty. Like, can't this only weaken our own intelligence if we comp- sort of, uh, I don't know, just give away our power uh, and let it, let it be, uh, you know, subject to a committee, an international committee? Right. Yeah, I mean, uh, you would think, uh, but my view is that really entities like the OSS and the CIA were set up always with the intent of being essentially operatives for international global elite interests. And um, the reason I say that is that if you get into the people who helped to set up the OSS, like Bill Donovan, or excuse me, uh, with Bill Donovan, they, they came from British intelligence to, to over here to do that and from Canadian intelligence. So William Stevenson, who uh, was Canadian intelligence, um, came uh, as well as did Ian Fleming, as well as did Noel Coward, as well as did a bunch of the, called the irregulars. And so if you watched, as you mentioned, uh, Good Shepherd with Matt Damon, that's actually showing you that because I'm trying to remember, is it Stephen Fry? I forget who plays the, or maybe somebody, it's another British actor that plays his handler because he goes to learn. Well, there's Alec Baldwin's kind of his handler, but he's also got that, that college professor. Wait, it's I when think. he goes to England, I'm saying, right? So he, he uh, Oh yeah. The, yeah. He gets a British professor who's kind of his British intelligence handler. Who's the, uh, you know, the gay guy that propositions him and all that. Um, uh, and he's the one that teaches him trade craft. And I think that's supposed to express that, the U.S. OSS apparatus was set up essentially by these um, U.K. British intelligence operatives. And that was actually done by design, if you get into the history of British intelligence, because the Milner Society, um, Lord Milner, who's, who had a, a huge amount of influence on the British intelligence apparatus from the time of 1900 all the way up until um, even into the uh, 20s and 30s, uh, Milner, along with uh, Cecil Rhodes, wanted a to bring the U.S. back under the aegis of the Anglo-American establishment, um, and they wanted the, the America to be an engine for uh, global interests because the British establishment had already, even in the 1890s, I've now found older versions of uh, global New World Orderism before even um, uh, the 1920s and 30s. You can go back to the 1890s when this is dreamt up with um what's called the milner circle and that's where we get a lot of these steering committees like the trilateral commission the cfr they're modeled on the royal institute for international affairs which was an old fabian institution which had the idea of creating and promoting fabian socialism as the ultimate model for world, world government so uh the 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 tweak there is that it's not identical to classical marxism because the fabians had the idea that Marxism would be a lot more successful if it allied itself with monopoly capital. And that's exactly how that's the thesis, by the way, of, of uh, Quigley and Tragedy and Hope and in Anglo-American establishment. That's how we got to World War II with the OSS basically being created under the auspices of wartime intelligence. But it becomes this private secret deep state that in the analysis of uh, two uh famous geopolitical writers who I think are correct, uh, Servando Gonzalez in his book, Psychological Warfare in the New World Order, and uh, F. William Ingdahl in his book, uh, Full Spectrum Dominance, they basically posit that the CIA is the private army of the Rockefellers. And so I think that that's the best way to understand it. That was always really for uh, these people. It was never really about the national interest. And you can even go back further prior to uh, OSS and CIA to uh, at, at the, in the time of Woodrow Wilson, the intelligence apparatus at that time was called the inquiry and the inquiry was a bunch of academics working under Wilson to push even at that time, the federal reserve. 
And we all know about, if you know about Geover Griffin, right? Uh, Colonel Edwin Mandel House and Woodrow Wilson and how the Federal Reserve Act got pushed. That was all the same people that I'm talking about behind this sort of, uh, you know, Fabian empire that they want to construct. This Federal Reserve model is this is their model. This is what they wanted. So, that's what I wanted to ask you about next was how, how this, because you mentioned 1890s. That's, you know, in the scheme of things, right before the establishment of the Federal Reserve. I mean, exactly feasibly feasibly linked and so i wanted to ask you what, what your thoughts were on how the federal reserve plays into this because it at first it looks like a national centralized you know fractional reserve banking system but as we as we've seen play out over the last you know century more than a century now it seems that it's intimately connected with globalist interests in terms of what we do impacts every other currency we're the we're the formal you know reserve currency and we were on the gold standard and then we weren't People think Nixon brought us off the gold standard, but maybe it was really FDR, you know, like who knows what. And so there's, it's so complicated, but it seems like not a coincidence that, you know, within a handful of years of establishing the federal reserve, we have world war one. And then within a decade or so we have the great depression and then we have world war two again. And then we have this, you know, this, this Keynesian conference in the fifties or whatever, right. To establish the U S dollar as the world's reserve currency. And And then with a handful and then it's Nixon after that taking us off the gold standard. And then it's hyperinflation after that. And then it's the cold war after that. And it's like everything that every problem that we've had globally, the last hundred years seems to be inevitably linked to the fact that we have a fucking federal reserve. Right. And I don't know if I'm just like, like a dumbass, but like, what are your thoughts on, in terms of that? It is. I mean, so in Quigley's uh, tragedy and hope, uh, he posits that the, uh, the, locus of this system goes back to the gold notes the promissory gold notes model where they could uh, basically just create as many gold notes as they wanted to inflate the currency while this was all used to basically buy up everything and the uh, central banking elite have the actual assets they have the actual gold and silver or or assets you know land whatever um, meanwhile they're inflating the currency with gold notes and then he says that the central bank model that was utilized by uh, throughout Europe and then uh, eventually spread to other countries like the U.S. as you're talking. I mean, that is a Fabian style. It's it's a quasi-Marxist, because if you remember in uh, Marx's Communist Manifesto, he talks about uh, a central a central bank model, right? But the difference is that it's not owned publicly by the people as it's portrayed to be. It's a private central bank, as you know. But here's the key point. Quigley says that the central bank of central banks is the bank for international settlements. And it was set up to be the central bank for all of the world's central banks, including the American Federal Reserve. So once the U.S. went on the Federal Reserve model in, uh, you know, the, the, the turn of the century, last century, that is what allowed the uh, power elite out of those London circles to then have the wherewithal to to steer the U.S. into creating the OSS and the CIA, which is what put us in the deep state problem to begin with. So that was, it was a, a direct connect. You're absolutely right. And the other thing too, is that it's the same. These are the same entities funding both sides of world war one and world war two, right? Quigley says that as well. And you mentioned Keynes, uh, Keynes was, was a, a Fabian uh, by, by self-profession. And so he was instrumental, as you said, Brentwood system. Um, and, that was intentional to create a global dollar-based system, but not a dollar-based system based on anything like a hard asset. So you're absolutely right to go back to FDR too, because if you read Quigley's chapter on FDR is amazing. It's one of the overlooked chapters because he talks about in that chapter that 
FDR was really just putting the whole country for the public works projects into debt to the banking elite. And all that did was kick the can down the road and then make the next generation in debt. So nobody, it, it wasn't a public works project that just went into debt and somehow paid for everything. It was a kick the can down the road, which is what we still do, right? The whole federal reserve system, all the quantitative easing, all of these boom busts. Basically the boom bust cycle is a rigged game is the point. That's the whole point. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just absolutely insane how, yeah. how irresponsible this, this has ultimately been, but it's the part of the problem is our leaders know that they'll be gone before the account. Right. There's accountability. Yeah. Right. But that we're coming. It seems like it. we're coming to a head though. We're like, somebody's going to be here. Like, so who do we blame when it, when, well, it, when, every, it, when this pops, every, who gets blamed? As you know, every country that has the, you know, federal reserve fiat system eventually goes bankrupt. Right. right. They eventually go into this, you know, hyperinflation, you know, it takes you, it takes 7,000 Zimbabwe dollars to buy a donut. Right. Yeah. But, but traditionally when, when like, if you look at the Weimar Republic, they had an insane hyperinflation problem and basically with a new government, you know, for better or for worse, they were able to just say, fuck all of that problem and start a whole new currency or, you know, like 1933, they're like, all right, you know, no more inflation. We got these new banking system. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. And it, you know, everything changed. And I'm not saying that that was like, you know, ethical or the right way to do it, but it does seem like when these collapses happen with, with a certain type of leadership, which is typically very autocratic and problematic, you can actually solve it. So like if our dollar collapses, you know, are we talking about like decades of global collapse and famine, or are we just talking about a power vacuum that catalyzes autocracy mm. and the problem immediately being solved within, you know, a handful of years? Yeah, that's, that's a tough one. I'm not sure how it will play out. I mean, I definitely think that um, there is a potential economic collapse in the cards in the next five to 10 years. Uh, that, that seems sure. to be something that they talk about quite often. And, you know, if you read Klaus's stuff, he kind of talks about it like, you know, the more of the crises that we have, the better for us, because it'll it'll be the catalyst for bringing in the next business phase of, you know, the new world order. Uh, you know, he's even said that publicly in, in talks about the next pandemic will be the cyber pandemic and it will be like nothing before. And it will be the greatest step forward to the new world order. You know, he, he has these actual quotes uh, about this kind of stuff. So. Um, probably something, you know, he, he, he talks about cyber polygon, maybe that that's what it'll be that triggers a kind of a, a eco collapse. Uh, I don't know, but I mean, it does, it definitely seems like that's in the cards and it wouldn't, it doesn't seem like it'd be that difficult given the fact that the whole, the whole system runs on debt. It's like debt based on debt, based on debt, based on debt. I mean, look, if you look at FTX, the recent crypto exchange crash was all a big, a big scam. I mean, that's kind of like the way the dollar runs, right? I mean, that's like a micro scale version of what the federal reserve system is. Right. Yeah. So that that's one of the things I wanted to ask you about on this, on this uh, federal reserve thread was what are your thoughts on the origin of cryptocurrency? Do you think that this was something that was a plant by the intelligence apparatuses that exist? Or do you think that this is a rogue sort of uh, protest to the establishment monetary system? Uh, I think that uh, Bitcoin is the solution uh, at an economic level to the federal reserve scam system. Um, right. I can't, I mean, I, I put a lot of time and research into this. Uh, I did change my mind on Bitcoin some years ago um, about 2016. I changed my mind. I used to think it was a scam and, you know, kind of like promoting the, 
uh, electronic, you know, central bank. Sure. Model well, it kind of was that. until it wasn't. Well, then you notice that, uh, according to a lot of these, uh, you know, global elite, they they hate Bitcoin. Like they can't stand it. They want it to go away, and they want you on this other thing, right? Oh, come over here to this to Klaus Coin. Come over here to Fed Coin. Come over here to C- CBDC and all this kind. All of those things, I think, are ultimately uh, versions of war on Bitcoin. So yes. it's true that it's true that the origin of Bitcoin is uh, somewhat mysterious, but I think that the originators of that did that on purpose and they were wise to do that because then it couldn't be pinned on any single person in an ideology because the idea was let's create uh the most ethical the most fair the most um energy resilient form of currency that man could have and so um that's i i think that's what bitcoin is there are a potentially maybe there's a couple other projects that will end up uh, making it and that are good um, I know at Rockfin, we have a native currency a, a token, which which uh, I support that. But, you know, typically um, I, I tend to just favor Bitcoin. Do you think because uh, this is just my intuition, so this is me just shooting shit. OK, the more time goes on, the more I think Elon Musk is at least partially Satoshi Nakamoto. Just because of his association with PayPal and he was really yeah. an innovator in the online financial transaction tech space 10 years before and he left PayPal and then, you know, his non-compete probably would have expired right, mm-hmm. right around the time that PayPal's white paper was. He's obviously got the intelligence and the skill set and the network to accomplish. I don't necessarily believe it's one person. I yeah. find it kind of hard to believe that Musk wasn't involved. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I tend to favor the thesis that it was probably, you know, a group of people. And uh, yeah, he, he certainly could have been uh, been one of those people. That was definitely mm-hmm. possible. So where can people find you, follow you and engage with you? Yeah, I'm on uh, YouTube under my name, Jay Dyer. Um, I host, uh, you know, the fourth hour of Lord Voldemort most every Friday uh, on average. Um, that's over at, at, uh, at his uh, sites. Um, I'm on Rockfin under my name, Jay Dyer, which is a, a good free speech based platform that, uh, that I love and support. And, uh, I have some unique content over there. I also have a, a subscription service where people can subscribe to my lectures and, and interviews and archives that we've, you know, like I mentioned the global elite book series. We also do a lot of debates with, uh, with various people out there on the internet. So, you know, we do a lot of different stuff and you can find all that at uh, my website, jasonalysis.com. And, uh, I have, uh, two books on Hollywood and two books on philosophy. And you can get those at the shop uh, at my website. Well, it's been an honor and a pleasure to have you on one American podcast and uh, I hope we'll stay in touch and you'll come back and join us again. Absolutely, man. Take care.